When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, we're going to go to the panel now, proudly sponsored by Malray Electric, putting the spark into Canterbury Rugby. Looking forward to dissecting all things sport this morning with a couple of broadcasting legends, Brendan Telfer and Garth Galloway. Truly privileged to have you both join us this morning. Brendan, we'll start with you. We've been talking through the life of Murray Holberg this morning. Just what a huge, huge loss. And I guess if you want to give your thoughts on it. Uh, yes, well, um, I agree with everything that I've heard said. He was a perfect gentleman. He was a very humble man. And he had this rare ability, when I think back on it, that when you were in his company, if you knew him, and I would never rate Murray as having been a personal friend of mine, but I had lots of contact with him when I was uh, commentating track and field. And so I'd see him regularly. But he'd always make me feel important. He'd always be asking me about my job and my life and things like that. And I used to be kind of slightly embarrassed that here I am in the company of this uh, extraordinary man and he's more interested in me than anything else. But it was very much in keeping with the man. And, um, okay, I suppose we know him in many ways of the current generation of New Zealanders growing up and they think of the Helberg Awards. And uh, it's just worth reminding folks, I suppose, that Murray uh, himself was a disabled athlete. He had his arm smashed to pieces when he was playing rugby for his school, Avondale College, I think, from memory, when he was about 13. And uh, the arm was rendered completely useless. All of the nerves were uh, tethered, and so he had no use for his left arm or couldn't use his left arm again for the rest of his life. And that great footage from Rome in 1960 where you see him running down the home straight, straight in his right arm very much in unison with his uh, stride pattern, but his left arm just sort of hanging out there, you know, with uh, nothing to do. So, um, again, it showed, I suppose, an important aspect of Murray as a person, his ability to overcome adversity. And then when his career as an athlete finished, he could easily have had a very successful, I imagine, profitable career as a, as a coach, a la along and Arthur Lydiard, who was his coach. But he didn't. Instead, he devoted basically the second half of his life to promoting people um, and the whole concept of disabled sport. And I think Murray probably would want to be remembered more for that than what he did on the track. Mm, incredible. I've spoken to so many athletes for both the news and radio over the last couple of days who never got the chance to meet him but wish they could have. So that's incredible. I guess as well, what a legacy he's now left behind with the Halberg Foundation. Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean, he single-handedly has, uh, I guess, taken disabled support from where it was, completely kind of ignored and disregarded and uh, never seen in any way as part of the mainstream of sport. And you look where it is now, right up to the highest level of international sport at World Championships and Olympic Games. And Murray Holberg has played a huge part in that and has been recognised around the world for what he did in New Zealand and providing a role model for many other countries to integrate disabled sport into mainstream sport. And, um, you know, he will always be remembered for that. But we should never forget his performances as uh, an athlete as well. And, I mean, that... 
5,000 meter victory, uh, or uh, yeah, the 5,000 or three miles as we used to call it in New Zealand, but <laughs> I went to school. Uh, but the 5,000 meters at the Rome Olympics in 1960, when he took off, as they say, in track and field with 1,000 meters to go, which was unheard of. And uh, no one for a moment thought that this guy could uh, remain out in front with two and a half laps to go against the best uh, middle distance runners in the world. But he did because of the. Um, training and the vision that Arthur Lydia had to do something different to break the race up and take this huge risk but Arthur never talking to Arthur Lydia about it he never saw it as a great risk um, he was absolutely convinced that Murray Holberg had the mental and physical strength and capabilities to stay out in front and he did he, he was pretty exhausted when he got to the finish line but it, it revamped the way uh, middle distance running um, was staged and you think of someone like Philbert Bay who basically took hold of that idea himself as a 1,500-metre runner and would take off with um, sometimes a lap to go. Um, and it stemmed from what Lydia and Helbert did at the Olympics in 1960 in Rome. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I loved what Tom Walsh said earlier too, um, Garth, around the fact that, you know, because he, he never met Sir Murray Halberg, but that he was someone who gave all athletes even today, that idea that you just strip it right back to its simplest form. There is no secret formula to sport. It's just to go out there and do it. Just hard work. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, he was an ama- yeah, he was an amazing New Zealander, and I think Brendan summed him up perfectly, you know. And uh, and, and growing up, um, you know, I mean, he set up the Helberg Foundation in 1963, 59 years ago. Uh, it's just incredible, three years after, you know. And, and, and 1960, 61, he broke four world records. You know, he was he was a remarkable athlete. But as Brendan says, uh, I think would be rather uh, remembered for his his philanthropy and his helping disabled athletes. And I think you know it's an extraordinary story, Brendan, that rugby one because that's quite some rugby injury, isn't it, that he suffered? And you know, yeah. I, I always for some reason always thought it was polio. You know, I'd, I'd always thought he'd been born disabled, and then read about him recently and and saw indeed it was a rugby injury. So. Mm. You know, life is an amazing thing. He then devoted himself to athletics, met Lydia, and the rest is history, as they say. And I think, you know, it, it also just harked back to an era of middle distance running in New Zealand, which was so wonderful. And, and growing up with it, you know, and you mentioned Philbert Bay, you know, those those races that he had with John Walker, and of course Walker winning the, the gold in the 1576, um, just just you know, and Helberg was was really the start of that in a way. It was. Yeah, a, a, a great New Zealander. I met him when I MC'd the 2007 um, Helberg Awards Sports Dinner. Uh, Dad was on the Helberg Trust for years with him. Just a wonderful, modest man who never talked about himself. I'm quite envious got, of you one, both, actually. I've got, I've got one interesting story about Murray, which he told me. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to Rome with him uh, in 2000. I'm making it as a reporter on a TVNZ documentary about the first 100 years of New Zealand's uh, participation at the Olympic Games. And uh, the producer had this idea of bringing Peterson and Murray Helberg, uh, taking them back to that stadium in Rome and just reliving that extraordinary day or one hour when they both won gold medals in two of the glamour events in track and field. And so uh, we were with Peter and Murray uh, and Murray's wife for four or five days in Rome filming around where they stayed and uh, other aspects of that experience in 1916. So I got to know Murray quite well. And he told me this interesting story, which has um, never really come to light, I don't think. Is in 1956, he went to the Olympic Games in Melbourne. and He was uh, one of the favourites for the 1,500 metres. 
Um, he had run the first sub four minute mile bike for New Zealand, and he had just made his starting to make his name as an international athlete. But he had a very poor Olympic Games by his standard. He finished fifth in, in the um, 1500 metres. And when he came back to New Zealand, he told me he was so disappointed and so upset that what he did, he took himself off on a trip around the South Island. Um, I don't know whether he just hitchhiked or whether he just um, used a vehicle, but he was sleeping out in the open, sleeping under bridges, sleeping in fields. He just wanted to be on his own um, for quite a few weeks or might have even been a few months from memory. And he travelled all around the um, South Island and he spent some time, I think, then with Arthur Leddy when he got back, who was coaching him. And uh, together they put a plan in place which saw him succeed um, at the 1958 Empire Games in uh, Cardiff, I think they were, where he won a gold medal. It might have been the 10,000, and then, of course, at Rome in 1960. But just an interesting idea that he didn't succeed in international sport and so took himself off on his own on a lonely trek around sleeping wild in the South Island when he got back. Uh, Again, it was another rather interesting insight into the man. Oh, such an interesting insight. The other thing, you guys will know this since you've, you've met the man, did he love? Did he like going by the name Sir, or was he one of those people that would tell you to drop it? Murray. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Muzz? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Garth is right. I can't recall ever having conversation with him over it. But um, uh, but a lot of those men, um, when I'm thinking about it, since Murray's passed away, that was an era where we produced all these really humble champions, not just in athletics, yeah. but I think Peter Snell was a very similar man to uh, Murray Helbig. I remember meeting Bert Sutcliffe. Um, I, I, I never saw him play, but he was a commentator when I first started working in uh, broadcasting in the early 1970s. He was still doing uh, radio commentaries, and so I would sort of meet him. And he was such a humble man. I mean, he was one of my idols, like Don Clark and John Reed and Bert Sutcliffe. And he was very much, Bert Sutcliffe was very much, and Garth, I'm sure, probably knew him better than I did, um, was very much in the mould of someone like Murray Helberg or Peter Snell. These world champion sportsmen, but so humble. And I don't know, Garth, I don't know whether we see that very often or as much today, do we, in our leading sportsmen? I don't think so. And, and you're absolutely right. And I had and seeing we've got a bit of time today, we can talk, which is lovely. I, I you know, I, I met Sutcliffe many times. He was a great friend of Dad's, and he, he, I remember him coming to the Dunedin to our home in Belmont Lane and sitting with him. And I was about twenty one, twenty two, and of course, um, you know, he played in that famous test in nineteen fifty three when Neil Adcock hit him in the head, and uh, yeah. and mm-hmm. and you remember Bob Blair's uh, fiance had died on the Tangawai disaster, and uh, New Zealand were were nine down, Blair, they all thought was back at the hotel. And um, when uh, Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe came into bat and hit, I think, at six sixes and scored 80 or so when he, when he came back with his uh, head swathed in bandages. And, uh, and as they lost their ninth wicket, everyone was thinking that was us. And then, of course, Bob Blair came out, uh, you know, coming down from the hotel with his fiance having died overnight and uh, batted. And they put on about another 80 runs. It's a great sort of boy's own story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I asked Bert about that, and he sat there and just took, took me through it word for word, and he said, you know, I don't mind saying, Garth, I, I had tears in my eyes when Bob Blair came out, you know, and it was, and, and for him just to spend time talking to me and taking me through it, it was wonderful. He was he was a great man, Bert Sutcliffe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the other one that was quite special was on the um, Live Into the News the other night. We had Dick Taylor, who was 
Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought he was great. But also so emotional. Like I think it's a lot – it gives him that time. To, when someone passes, we have that moment of reflection, and you could tell Dick was really doing that. He was really visibly upset. So yeah. the impact has been – like on his loss has been huge, not only for, you know, those who are part of the Halberg Foundation or being impacted it. I spoke to Katie Daw yesterday here in Christchurch, and she's been um, one of the leaders sort of in the South Island for groups that go on the tour, and she was like quite upset too, talking about how she's seen the impact on little kids' lives to have these opportunities, right through to people like Dick. Like, what's that been like for you guys as well, watching? Because I don't know, that made me choke up the other night, <laughs> seeing Dick upset. Well, well uh, with, with respect to Dick, to Dick Taylor, um, he was part of this very special group of what yes. was known as Artist Boys. He was um, Taylor was coached uh, by Arthur Letty as well. And there was this very special bond. I saw Barry McGee on television the other night, a close friend of Murray's as well, who won the um, bronze medal in the marathon at Rome in 1960. And there was Peter Snell, who's passed away. John Davies, he's passed away. Uh, Arthur Letty, he's passed away. And so um, Joseph Romanus wrote this very fine book many years ago called Arthur's Boys and examined um, how this bond uh, came about and how all of these athletes from New Zealand became world champions, Olympic champions, the world record holders um, throughout the league. And so there was this very special bond between all of these men. I, I saw it myself because I was a close friend of John Davies and his relationship with Peter Snell and Arthur Leddy. And um, this is where I'm sure the emotion was coming through for people like uh, Dick Taylor. He's probably one of the last, along with Barry, still alive yes. from Arthur's Boys, uh, that remarkable chapter in New Zealand sport, uh, which, uh, as we recall, with um, Dick Taylor, he was very much part of it, and his success, especially at the Commonwealth Games in 1974. So, yeah, it, it's, it was, it's very emotional, this, this, this special group of men uh, have virtually now all passed away. Yeah, but Taylor, it's a beautiful... and, 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 and nothing more emotional than, than, than Taylor winning that race in '74 in Christchurch, uh, Brendan. You yes. know that 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 is one of the great sporting images etched in my mind forever. Is that you know his emotion, throwing his arms in the air, crash, you know, crashing down onto the track and lying there with his arms outspread. You know, a, a, another great character and a great New Zealander. And, and um, when we lose people like Sir Murray, we, you know, we've just lost a great person. But fortunately. Uh, his stories and his legacy will live on. Uh, you know, no, we won't ever forget him. He, he was just a remarkable human being. Yeah, I was just about to say that too, Garth. It's like, uh, yeah, the unfortunate thing, obviously, it's such a sad loss, but then now we get to speak about all these beautiful stories and it's such it's such important reminders, I think, for so many of us, like, especially who, who you know, like the younger generation as well. I think it's really important that it's talked about and the stories live on. So thanks for adding to those beautiful stories this morning. Um, to get forward into sport that we've got at the moment, Garth, I know you're a cricket man. White Ferns against Bangladesh. Did you watch the game last night? I guess, what did you make of it? Absolutely <laughs> clinical display there from the White Ferns. <laughs> I, look, I'm glad I didn't. And I don't mean any disrespect at all to the White yes. Ferns, but uh, Bangladesh are, are eighth or ninth in the world or something, bowled out to 32 and not one player getting into double flickers. I find it hard to get excited, I'm afraid. But, um, you know, they have to play the team they're playing against. They, they scored 164, batted well. Uh, and, you know, and good on them. Um, you know, they, they, they should just go out and annihilate this Bangladeshi side, but it's not a great spectacle. And um, uh, But as I say, they've got to play the team against them and they've got a, a World Cup coming up. So, you know, I, I think they're probably like stronger opposition. But, they're you know, they're a team that are, are, are on the mend, I suppose, after a disappointing 
50 over World Cup, uh, you know, earlier this year. Um, uh, there are some good things happening, and it's nice to see Tahuhu getting back into, uh, you know, really good form. Yeah, I mean, I probably, I, as you sort of alluded to, I don't think we can read in too much into those career-best figures, but they are career-best figures, four for six. I guess just the wider conversation around the fact that Leah Tahuhu was unwanted by New Zealand cricket six months ago. She is a key cog in this White Ferns team, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, she's, she's she's essential. And, um, you know, if you have Tahuhu playing well, you've got uh, a, a great asset. So, I mean, it is quite interesting looking at how the side's been um, been run and some of the selections. And, of course, you know, Southaway, uh, whose partner, was also uh, yes. dropped. And, you know, you wonder if there's room for her to come back. I, I think what New Zealand cricket and the women's game wanted was a, a slight cultural shift. That's what they've been looking for. Um, and, uh, you know, they certainly appear to have made it. And, and what I hope we see from them is that... Um, players will ask a lot more of themselves and be uh, self-reflective, you know, in relation to their performances. And, you know, cause I, I just felt that uh, during the World Cup there was a tendency to, to, to blame external factors. And you just want to see a team who are taking responsibility. And I think, um, you know, there are some players who are starting to shine. They do have the, uh, the makings of being a good side. But I think to put together top performances against top sides uh, requires a lot, and 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 you, we're going to going to have to see character. That's what you hope that we're seeing uh, developing in the team. Yeah, I totally agree with yeah, you. Um, I spoke uh, to Amy. Oh, sorry. Continue on there. I, I would take a slightly different view of that match last night than, than Garth. I mean, uh, Bangladesh I see a rank seventh uh, in the world, um, ahead of countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Ireland, the Netherlands. Um, and yes, I mean, it's wonderful that the women in many of these countries, particularly in Asia, uh, who have been absolutely politically, I suppose, excluded from playing sport for, for decades, are now um, starting to get some idea that, um, you know, women can play sport and they deserve to be uh, promoted and they deserve to be helped. And so I thought they were a reasonably competitive team when they were here earlier in the year in the, um, admittedly, the, the 50 over World Cup. And uh, I don't know how many players from that team are back here now. Maybe it's a completely different team. And so they were they just freaked out by the conditions here, which they've never encountered before. But um, the, the other thing, which just slightly off the point here, I was just thinking, is this the lowest score in international cricket, Garth, since the infamous 26 back in the 1950s by New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, how <her> atonement. <laughs> well, actually, the Bangladesh captain, you are kind of spot on there, um, Garth, in a way, too, because last night the Bangladesh captain said, like, the, they, she got asked about the conditions and playing under lights, the nighttime game, they haven't experienced that before either. Um, and there there are some new players in that team that haven't toured here before or been on many tours at all. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in the field, I feel like they were more competitive than they were with the bat. So, look, it's a six-game series. Yeah. They'll be wanting to to put that one quickly behind them and move forward to need I'd say. They probably can't get on the plane quick enough. Um, well, my... we'll see how they go in the cold down there. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's the other thing. The other thing that I think we should mention here, what an extraordinary topsy-turvy week it's been for international cricket. There we had England a couple of days ago yes. scoring over 500 runs yes. in one first day of that test match against Pakistan in Pakistan, of all places, uh, where sometimes 200 runs in the past in the days playing test match cricket isn't such a bad achievement. So we had 500 runs in a day of test cricket 
from well under 90 overs. I think they only bowled 75 until the um, light uh, deteriorated and they had to stop. And then a couple of days later, we get a 32. So something for everybody in international cricket this week, surely. <laughs> Was there what? From the from Joe Root feeding stray kittens on a... <laughs> on a pitch when they're all supposed to be ill too. That was the other story, to completely flip that around. Um, and just quickly before we head off, uh, Brendan, I just want your thoughts. Super Rugby locked in with all 12 teams through till 2030, another eight years. How, how are you feeling about that? Oh, I think it's a good thing. I think that these two years have kissed and made up. I think New Zealand have been pretty arrogant, actually, towards Australia. And I think I read somewhere that New Zealand Rugby gives Australia $5 million a year for their participation in the uh, Super 12 competition. Um, and New Zealand gets $100 million or something from Sky New Zealand Rugby. And um, I saw a piece on TV3's news last night from their rugby reporter. Again, he was basically taking this attitude. Oh, Australia have woken up and realised that they haven't got much to offer at the table. So be thankful for whatever we give them. Um, uh, sure, rugby in Australia is struggling, we know, on and off the field, and I imagine the success of the Socceroos this week will push rugby even further down the um, food chain, as it were. They don't command the sort of you know, revenue that the sport can in New Zealand. But we also need those Australian teams to make the Super 12 competition better. I like totally. seeing our top teams play against each other, but I like playing, seeing them play against Australia. And we should be giving them a decent chunk of money to ensure that we have them in our competition. I think that's happened. Totally. Well, thank you, Brendan and Garth, both for your time. I hope sometime we can catch up for a coffee in person. That's it for the Enterprise Canterbury Sports Corner this week. I've been your host, Jordan Oppert. We'll catch you next week.